2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Sam Maupin is engineering. Today on the program, we're looking forward to a conversation that I didn't think we were going to share today. I was uh, preparing for a conversation with Mark Paoletta. He's the co-author of Created Equal, the book, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. Now, this follows the documentary that was released uh, some time back. Um, however, there is some sort of a snafu with the publicist, and that will be Uh, That has been rescheduled for the 30th, so I apologize for uh, failing to bring the interview, I promise, but we will be sharing a classic interview with Craig Evans. Dr. Evans is the author of Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll also um, finish up on comments regarding belief in God, the fact that it's waning according to Gallup, what that means, and what one church here in the city is doing in response to well God's call to uh, prepare to share the gospel. So that's all coming up in the second hour of today's program. I wanted to begin by reading from a uh, post on a Facebook page from just a couple of days ago, Friends of Norm Cook. Please keep Norm Cook, retired Multnomah University professor and his family in your prayers. I just got off the phone with Norm's daughter and she asked me to post this update prayer request. Norm is now in hospice in his home. It appears that the end of his life on earth is near. He has fought the good fight. Kept the faith and served the Lord well. Now God God is calling him home. When I visited Norm about a month ago, he was reading scripture to me and he seemed in good spirits, but was definitely getting weaker. He recently had a bad fall in his house and his body isn't recovering well. Hospice doesn't expect him to be here on earth beyond the next seven days. It has been very hard for Norm ever since his wife passed away a few years ago. But he has continued to press on, seeking what God would have um, him to do each day. Norm is on a heavy dose of morphine to help with the pain. His breathing is becoming a struggle for him. I'll keep you all posted as I find an outcome. Then that uh, post on Facebook was updated on Monday, June the twentieth. Norm just passed away peacefully about seven fifteen p m Pacific time this evening. Many of us are sad, but we should uh, uh, be also grateful to have been able to know him and have our lives impacted by him. There's such comfort that he's now free of his frail body, reunited with Muriel. And with his Savior, please keep his daughters, Shelly Cook uh, Volkhart and Millie Cook Yardley and the rest of the uh, the family in your prayers. Well, Dr. Norm Cook, for those of you who are uh, unfamiliar, deeply impacted many as a longtime professor of missions and evangelism at Multnomah University. Together with his wife, Muriel, who was herself a faculty adjunct and counselor at large, They mentored countless students, alumni, and couples throughout the years, and even into their retirement. Well, he and Muriel served for many years in Taiwan as missionaries through Overseas Crusade, and Norm, Dr. Cook, was very involved in sports missions, coaching basketball overseas through Venture for Victory. Well, as a much-loved and exemplary Christian couple, they poured their lives and passion and to the Multnomah community as conduits for the love and grace of Jesus. Muriel went home to be with the Lord just three years ago, and on Monday evening at 7.15 p.m. Pacific time, Dr. Norm joined her in glory. On his Facebook page, the family have written, and again quoting, many of us are sad, but we should all be grateful, all be so grateful to have been able to know him and have our lives impacted by him. There's such comfort that he now is free of his frail body, reunited with his wife Muriel and with his savior, please keep the daughters and the rest of the family in your prayers. Just remembering the life and legacy of this uh, significant warrior for the faith, uh, Doctor Norm Cook. Well, moving on to news, which, quite frankly, the legacy of which will simply dissipate almost as soon as it's <laughs> as it's pronounced. When you contrast that with a life that has eternal impact of Doctor Norm Cook, some some of this stuff seems rather trivial, but I will bring you up to date. But maybe this will help us all have a bit of perspective on what really matters. Well, Stephen Colbert broke his silence on the arrests of his crew and production members who were caught and charged with being in an unauthorized area of a U.S. Capitol building last week, jokingly calling for arrests, uh, first-degree puppetry. Well, during Monday night's Late Show, he downplayed the arrests as a very professional interaction between his staff and cautious Capitol Police officers, He opened the show by asking the audience about their weekends before joking. Well, I had an interesting one and some members of my staff had a memorable one in quote. The Capitol Police were just doing their job. My staff was just doing their job. Everyone was very professional. Everyone was very calm. The host continued. My staffers were detained, processed and released. A very unpleasant experience for my staff. Well, on Thursday, a group dubbed the Colbert Seven were arrested for unlawful entry in the Longworth House office building. You have to have credentials to enter the building. They apparently had them, but they overstayed their welcome and uh, were in an area they were not authorized to be in. What happens next? I guess we'll just have to wait and see if anybody actually cares. And a West Wing whirlwind, Biden senior advisor Anita Dunn is facing an ethics complaint from a government watchdog group amid her return to the White House. And former Vice President Mike Pence addressed whether he will run for president in 2024 and his relationship with former President Trump, saying he will not allow the Democrats to use January 6th to distract attention from their failed agenda and praise the former president's record while indicating, though, that his decision on whether to run for the White House in 2024 will not be impacted by Trump's own re-election plans. He went on to say that January 6th was a tragic day, and I know uh, we did our duty, but I will always be proud of our record, Uh, and I am not going to allow the Democrats to use this tragic day to distract attention from their failed agenda or to demean the intention of 74 million Americans who rallied behind our cause. Well, in a gas gimmick, President Biden is considering a federal gas tax holiday that former President Obama once called a gimmick back in 2008 on the campaign trail. He was the uh, vice president at that time. And the Twitter board has unanimously endorsed Musk. And a takeover. The Board of Directors on Tuesday unanimously recommended that its shareholders approve the company's proposed $44 billion sale to Tesla CEO Elon Musk, according to a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission. The board unanimously determined that the merger agreement was uh, advisable and the merger and other transactions contemplated by the merger agreement are fair to uh, advisable in the best interest of Twitter and its Stockholders, according to the filing, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the day's news. Later, we'll talk with Dr. Craig Evans. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. While well, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled six to three in Carson versus versus Mackin a case that challenged a Maine law that discriminates against parents based on religion by providing some families with tuition support for the school, their choice, but denying that same support to other families. Well, the high court held that the Maine program violates the Free Exercise Clause. The high court considered whether a 1982 Maine law violates the First Amendment by excluding religious schools from the state's tuitioning system, that's what it's called, tuitioning system, which pays for students to attend private schools. Well, three families from three different small towns in Maine, sued the state over a program that bans families from an otherwise generally available student aid program if they choose to send their children to schools that teach religion. They qualified for Maine's town tuitioning program in an other uh, all other aspects, but uh, they are excluded from participating only because they chose religious schools for their children. Well, as a result, these families who want to send their children to Christian schools in Bangor and Waterville were denied in lower federal courts and then appealed to the Supreme Court. Well, because many of uh, many areas of the state are rural and sparsely populated, not all school districts run their own secondary schools to help students in those districts attend secondary schools, the state has paid for students to attend either another public school or a private school of their choice. However, since 82, the state has only allowed tuition payments under the program to go to private schools that do not provide religious instruction. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the opinion with Justice Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, joining Justice Breyer, uh, writing the dissent joined by Justice Kagan in which uh, Justice Sotomayor joined in part Justice Sotomayor also filed a dissent. Justice Roberts wrote, "...a neutral benefit program that gives public funds to religious organizations through the independent choices of the recipients..." Of these benefits does not violate the Constitution's Establishment Clause. The principles outlined in two recent cases, Trinity Lutheran v. Comer and Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue, decide this case. Because the benefits hinge on whether a school is religious, the main program effectively penalizes the free exercise of religion. The majority opinion continued, the unremarkable principles applied in Trinity Lutheran and Espinoza Uh, Suffice to resolve this case, Maine offers its citizens a benefit, tuition assistance payments for any families whose school district does not provide a public secondary school. Just like the wide range of nonprofit organizations eligible to receive playground resurfacing are eligible to receive Maine tuition assistance payment here. And like the daycare center in Trinity Lutheran, BCS and Temple Academy are disqualified from this generally available benefit solely because of their religious character. By conditioning the availability of benefits in that manner, Maine's tuition assistance program, like the program in Trinity Lutheran, effectively penalizes the free exercise of religion. While the wording of the Montana and Maine provisions is different, their effect is the same. As noted, the neutral benefit program in which public funds flow to religious organizations through the independent choices of private benefit recipients does not offend the Establishment Clause. The Minnesota Supreme Court delivered a win Monday for a group of Minneapolis residents who had been suing over an influx of crime into their neighborhood following the defund the police movement, ruling the city is not hiring the approximately 731 police officers required under its charter. The nine page order issued Monday by the Chief Justice Lori Gildia stems from a lawsuit brought by a group of eight Northside residents who sued the mayor and Minneapolis City Council for not fulfilling their obligation to fund and employ uh, 0.0017. Uh, sworn police officers per Minneapolis resident. Well, Based on the 2020 census, at least 731 officers should be on the force based on the city's population. The ruling says the city council is followed through By allocating funding in the 2021 budget for 770 sworn officers, dozens more than required by the city. Yet the number of officers on the force still sits at below 731. As of late May, the Minneapolis Police Department had just 621 officers on the payroll, including 39 on continuous leave of two weeks or longer, the Minneapolis Star reported. Well, the police department has seen an exodus of more than 300 officers since the death of George Floyd in May of 2020 and the riots and anti-police protests that followed. Though Minneapolis voters last November rejected a proposal that would ax the police department and establish a new public safety agency, the force has struggled to recruit new officers willing to take the job. And that's a problem not just in Minneapolis, but other parts of the country as well. With the Supreme Court expected to soon announce a pivotal decision that could overturn Roe versus Wade, Republican lawmakers are using a procedural tactic to try to force a House vote on recognizing life at conception. We could put the most benign, most modest life proposal forward and get zero Democrat votes, or we could put a bold, strong life proposal forward and get zero Democrat votes in this Congress. That's a quote from Representative Bob Good, a Republican from Virginia who started a uh, discharge petition on a bill. He's speaking to the Daily Signal in an interview at the Capitol. Well, Good's discharge petition to force one hour of floor debate and a House vote has 60 co-sponsors. Under House rules, if a discharge petition gains 218 signatures for the House members, it would force the full House to vote on the matter. The Life at Conception Act has more than 150 sponsors. The Democrats told hold rather a narrow majority in the House 220 to 209. Representative Alex Mooney from West Virginia, also a Republican, sponsored the Life at Conception legislation, which is not a national abortion ban, but if enacted would mean Congress recognizes life at conception. Here, the science is very clear. Every biology, knowledge, knowledgeable person in the world can tell you that human life begins at conception, Mooney told the Daily Signal in a phone interview. It's a biological fact. The lifespan of all species begins at conception. Multiple embryology textbooks have said life begins at conception. President Joe Biden recently said when life begins and a debatable matter, but um, as vice president in 2012 said he believed life begins at conception. The whole basis of Roe versus Wade is life is not defined when it begins. It explicitly said Congress does not define life, Mooney added. The main purpose of the bill is that Roe versus Wade is not necessary because Congress defines life at conception. Now, all that would do um, is return it to the states to enforce or not enforce the law. In May, a draft decision of the Dobbs-Jackson uh, Healthcare uh, Women's Health Organization case leaked, showing a majority of the high court is expected to overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that nationalized the abortion issue. After the leak, Representative Diana DeJet of uh, Colorado, a Democrat, the chairwoman of the House Pro-Choice Caucus, said Congress must enshrine abortion, abortion in federal law. And the back and forth continues. Well, in a parent's worst nightmare, another teen with no history of drug abuse was killed by fentanyl. 17-year-old Placer County, California student Zach Didier's parents found him slumped over his desk in 2020, dead from a then unknown cause. With California's uptick in fentanyl poisonings and deaths, the coroner officials suggested it could be the cause of Zach's sudden death. Well, Zach's mother said that she initially had no idea how such a powerful opiate found its way into her home. This was nothing we were prepared for. Zach was a 17-year-old high school senior. He had no history of abusing drugs or alcohol, she said. So it was a complete shock to us when he was found at his desk and passed away two days after Christmas in 2020. It was later discovered that Zach obtained what he believed to be oxycodone pill via Snapchat, and ingested it after the rest of his family had gone to sleep. This is a growing concern for parents and kids who have no idea what they're taking. Well, rhino hunting, critics rightly slammed a GOP Senate candidate, Eric Greitens, for his cringeworthy political ad featuring violent military imagery. The Missouri Republican Senate candidate is under fire for releasing an ad that encouraged bagging and tagging moderate Republicans with a rhino hunting permit. It was intended to be tongue-in-cheek. These days, doesn't work quite as well as it might have. Calling herself a proud American, CIA officer turned Democratic Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger says she's an accountable and engaged legislator. Closing loopholes, Senate gun negotiators could have a bill next uh, text rather on Monday as talks pick up steam in the wake of recent mass shootings. And President Biden took a shot at a reporter who said a recession could be inevitable, replying... Don't make things up. Citing what he calls an unfair advantage, Bill de Blasio reportedly complained about opponents MSNBC appearances as he makes his bid for Congress. He probably has the greatest name recognition, but he's pretty upset. Primary concerns. Virginia voters cite the economy, education and gun safety as their top priorities ahead of Tuesday's primary. And in a deterrence force, the U.S. can rely on regional partnerships with Japan and Australia to deter Chinese ambition in the region as the two Indo-Pacific countries develop closer ties and more robust military capabilities. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show coming up in our second hour. Dr. Craig Evans, Jesus and the Manuscripts. We'll also talk about a survey that Gallup recently conducted indicating belief in God is waning and a Christian response. Well, Democrat voters blame President Biden for inflation. Ed Morrissey reports that one can only play dodgeball for so long before they got bombed by their own side. Joe Biden's attempts to dodge responsibility for inflation by shifting blame to Vladimir Putin and greedy corporations haven't fooled too many people, according to the new tip poll conducted in partnership with Issues and Insights. The Putin price hike line isn't even selling among Democrats, a majority of whom blame Biden for the significant part of the soaring inflation. A Kremlin spokesman has refused to guarantee the safety of Americans captured in Ukraine. Axios reports that Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov told NBC News Monday international rules of war wouldn't apply to two Americans that Russian forces captured in Ukraine and he wouldn't rule out death sentences for the vets. The U.S. State Department issued a statement to Axios and other outlets calling on the Kremlin as well as its proxies to live up to their international obligations in their treatment of any individual, including those captured fighting in Ukraine. Geneva Convention's protections include ensuring prisoners of war must at all times be humanely treated. NBC says it depends on the investigation. Dmitry Peskov told NBC News senior international correspondent when he was asked whether Alexander Druk and Andy uh, Hine Uh, would face the same fate as two British citizens and a Moroccan who were sentenced to death by Moscow-backed separatists in eastern Ukraine this month. The families of the pair reported, uh, 39 and 27 years uh, uh, respectively, reported them missing last week. Peskov said the pair were involved in illegal activities in Ukraine, firing on Russian troops. Those guys on the battlefield were firing at our military guys. They were endangering their lives, he said. Uh, There will be a court and there will be a court decision. Uh, They should be punished, he added, calling them soldiers of fortune. Chevron's CEO is pessimistic about the United States building another oil refinery, ever. The Institute for Energy Research says that Chevron CEO Mike Wirth doesn't expect another oil refinery to be built in the United States ever again due to federal government policies. The last significant finery built in the United States was in 1976. A small refinery came online in 2020 in North Dakota. Over the last two years, due to reduced demand for pandemic and president uh, from the pandemic, rather and President Biden's stated policy to reduce the demand for petroleum products, U.S. refineries have been shut down or repurposed to become biofuel refineries and a business uh, where investments have a payout period of a decade or more. It's unlikely for investment to be spent on policies where the demand is to be reduced. A Hot Air reports that the Democrats, now led by Joe Biden, have been warning everyone for years that they were going to find a way to move the world away from the use of fossil fuels. The president promised to end fossil fuels on the campaign trail and enacted policies moving in that direction starting on his first day in office. The oil and gas industry were listening and they've responded accordingly. Sadly, we don't have sufficient resource to replace them at this time. Well, according to a new report, one in five pregnancies ended in abortion in 2020. National Review reports the new Guttmacher data suggests that the abortion rate increased by approximately 7 percent between 2017 and 2020. The increase was fairly widespread, as 28 states reported an increase in the abortion rate over this time period. That said, there was more variance in uh, state uh, abortion rate fluctuations than is typical. Some states experienced large abortion rate declines due to abortion facility closures, while others experienced substantial abortion rate increases due to a rise in women obtaining abortions from out of state. Albert Moeller weighs in, saying the bottom line in all of this is actually made clear by The New York Times, as it summarizes that in the year 2020, one out of every five pregnancies ended in abortion. That means that if you line up all the women who had pregnancies during the period from uh, 2020, 20 out of 100, or put it another way, one out of five chose to end the pregnancy by abortion, killing the unborn child, terminating the life rather than to carry the child to term. One out of five, we really are looking at something that's beyond description as an atrocity or even as a national crisis. But we're also looking at the fact that about half of the states of the United States are ardently pro-abortion, even as about half are increasingly pro-life. That just shows you a divide over a basic worldview or moral issue that staggers the imagination, end quote. Well, the mother of a fallen police officer on D.A. Gascon declares he's destroying so many lives. Well, the parents of a slain California police officer are demanding the Los Angeles D.A. be recalled for his uh, policies after their son and his partner were killed in the line of duty. Jose Santana and Olga Garcia joined Fox News Fox and Friends first to discuss their son's tragedy and why they uh, pin the blame on what critics call Gascon's radical policies. It's not fair. Gasco needs to be recalled immediately. Garcia told the co-host of the program he's destroyed so many lives and he's completely destroyed ours. We're just completely devastated. Well, China has concluded its anti-ballistic missile testing Sunday evening. CNN reports that China successfully conducted an anti-ballistic missile test on Sunday night, according to the country's defense ministry, part of ongoing military efforts to enhance the country's defensive capabilities. It was a land-based mid-course missile test within China's border, the ministry said in a brief statement, adding the test was defensive in nature and not targeted against any country. Anti-ballistic missile systems are meant to shield a country from potential attacks by using projectiles to intercept incoming missiles, including intercontinental ballistic missiles. Some analysts liken, to, liken it rather to shooting down a bullet with another bullet. The Washington Examiner says U.S. military officials, for their part, have acknowledged a misgivings that China's nuclear upgrades are increasingly inconsistent with a stated no first use policy, raising the specter of a preemptive strike, and Russian President Vladimir Putin's uh, invocation of nuclear weapons to deter Western intervention on behalf of Ukraine has stoked anxiety in the Indo-Pacific that other nuclear-armed regimes might follow suit. Iran has admitted to industrial sabotage at the Iranian Military Research Center, but only after scrutiny. The Daily Wire reports that Iran finally admitted what the world suspected – when a top official acknowledged on Monday that a mysterious explosion last month at a military research center was no accident. The May 25th explosion at a facility in Parchin uh, that killed one engineer and injured another was attributed to a drone attack by Western media. It followed the assassinations of key defense officials and other clandestine efforts to impede the Islamic Republic's alleged efforts to develop nuclear weapons. But at the time, Iran's Ministry of Defense and Armed Forces Logistics insisted the explosion was an accident. On Monday, Iranian media outlets quoted Imam Hussein, University President Hassani Aghar, uh attributing the explosion to industrial sabotage the times of israel reports that iran's nuclear program has been the target of a campaign of sabotage cyber attacks and assassinations of key scientists that it is blamed on israel israel has vowed it will not let iran obtain nuclear weapons israel did not comment on the incident at Parchin, but it mirrored others that they have taken place that have taken place rather recently in iran and lebanon where jerusalem has sought to target tehran's a production and transfer of drone technology to proxy groups across the Middle East. Athletes are praising the swimming governing body's decision to protect the integrity of aquatic sports. Former Olympic gold medalist and Title IX advocate Donna De Verona applauded FINA, uh, the swimming international governing body, for approving a new policy that would limit the participation of transgender women from competing in high-level women's swimming events. Town Halls points out that in an interview after the news broke, Australian Olympic gold medalist swimmer Emily Seabohm told Sky News Australia that she is finally happy that we have a decision and that we just didn't know what was going to happen. It's hard to commit fully to our sport if we have no idea the direction it's going to go, she added. We can all move on. We can all just go back to the sport that we love. And know that we are getting in the pool and going to, it's going to be fair, a level playing field, and that's what we want. Canada is planning to invest $30 billion in defense to counter Russian and Chinese threats in the Arctic. The Wall Street Journal reports that on Monday, Canada pledged to spend over $30 billion over the next two decades to help detect and track military threats from Russia and China in the Arctic. This would mark one of the biggest outlays by Canada in decades on bolstering its defense capabilities and would deliver on a promise to the U.S. to modernize its capabilities to help defend the continent as part of the North American American Aerospace Defense Command, or NORAD. Military analysts have repeatedly warned NORAD radar and satellite image capabilities in the North require a dramatic upgrade given Russia's development of a new generation of long-range air and sea-launched cruise missiles and hypersonic missiles. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, uh, break rather, and in the second hour, we'll hear from uh, Dr. Craig Evans, Jesus, and the Manuscripts. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In our second hour, Jesus and the Manuscripts, what we can learn from the oldest texts. And we'll also talk about the Gallup survey, indicating that belief in God is waning and a Christian response. So that's coming up in our next hour. Well, on President Biden's intentional ammo shortage, anti-Second Amendment activists have long set their crosshairs on America's most popular firearm, the AR-15. And while legislation aimed at banning that rifle, is uh, pretty much a non-starter in Congress. The president and crew are still determined to do everything they can to limit access. In that vein, the president took a page out of the Barack Obama playbook and is going after ammunition used for the AR. The uh, government-owned Lake City uh, Army Ammunition Plant in Missouri has produced ammo for the U.S. Army since '41. The factory also sells excess supplies to private sellers, uh, such as Winchester, which in turn sells the ammunition on the open market. Well, Lake City happens to be one of the largest manufacturers of that particular ammunition, one of the calibers used by the AR-15, producing approximately one-third of all of the the sold in the United States. Now the administration has uh, slated Lake City for closure, a move that would eliminate 400 to 500 jobs and significantly impact the nation's supply of ammo, even as current supply levels uh, struggle to keep up with the demand. The closure would freeze over 30 percent of the uh, caliber ammunition used by law abiding gun owners. Um, observed uh, Mark Oliva, a spokesperson for the National Shooting Sports Foundation. Worse, he says it risks the ammunition industry's ability to surge uh, production capacity for national defense if it costs to uh, maintain the present workforce isn't recouped through sales to the civilian market. If you like your gun, you can keep your gun, but you just can't get the ammunition under the current plan. Virginia's lieutenant governor is considering the irony of teenage abortion protesters The Virginia Lieutenant Governor Winsome Sears recently responded to images of teenage pro-abortion advocates by saying... I have no words when I see these grotesque images. I wonder what country I'm living in and what the mindset uh, would be to cause this to happen. Well, the images that she was uh, referencing were of teenage girls with their hands tied, wearing white blood-stained pants, while a sign featuring a bloody coat hanger stated not going back was held over their heads. Sears then noted it must be that their parents feel the same and think the same as they do. And don't they realize the irony of this? Well, the reason why... You are here is because at some point your mother was pro-choice, and that's why you, my dears, are here, she says. Otherwise, you would not be. She then diagnosed the root cause of the problem. We've left God behind, plain and simple, and I don't know how we're going to do because we keep calling on him only when there's a crisis. And he's probably saying, don't you know me at any other time? Well, she pointed to families as being the bedrock of any society, saying we need to be cultivating the right values into our children and society. Well, so much for Biden's Russian sanctions. After months of sanctions in response to the Russian strongman Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, Russia's currency has actually increased in value. The ruble is currently at its highest value against the dollar in over seven years. The ruble is now 35 percent on the U.S. dollar this year, trading at uh, 55.78 to the dollar. The Russian currency Is this strong despite initially cratering at the start of the war, dropping to a value less than a penny? Now it's the world's best performing currency against the dollar. Much of the value increase can be attributed to skyrocketing global energy prices. Economist Tatiana Orlova notes commodity prices are currently sky high. And even though there's a drop in the volume of Russian exports due to the embargo and sanctioning, the increase in commodity prices more than compensates for these drops. Well, the problem Moscow is now facing is how to keep the ruble from getting too strong in order to encourage economic growth. The central bank is in a rough spot, says Institute of International Finance Deputy Chief. Uh, If they continue loosening, they may open the floodgates of capital flows out of the country. In previous crises, $200 billion left the country in a matter of months. Meanwhile, Putin is showing no intentions of ending his war anytime soon. Well, the Twitter board unanimously recommended Elon Musk's Takeover bid and the majority of Democrats say runway a runaway inflation is President Biden's fault. More Disney problems as light Ear crashes and the left media ignores the woke agenda behind it. Israel's prime minister is stepping down, sparking a new round of elections. I believe it's the third in five years, or the fifth, and three years, one or the other, is Pope Francis resigning. Catholics wait with bated breath as rumors swirl. Well, there was chaos on Juneteenth. Political analyst Gary Bauer writes, Sadly, in multiple cities over the weekend, folks started celebrating Juneteenth early and with unlicensed street parties, there were drugs and booze and twerking in Chicago. It was another bloody weekend with 47 people shot and four killed in Washington, D.C. Chaos broke out when gunfire erupted, killing a teenager and injuring one police officer and at least two others. A shooting in New York City left one dead and eight injured. Like many big cities dominated, um, uh, the Washington, D.C. jumped to cut its police department. Now, Mayor. A Bowser is begging for new officers. She's offering up to $26,000 in signing bonuses, but even that big a bonus is unlikely to get new recruits to do a dangerous job while people like Bowser and others uh, call them racists and oppose their every move. On this day in history, 1834, Cyrus Hall McCormick receives a patent for his reaping machine. 1964, civil rights worker Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, and James Cheney are slain in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Their bodies would be found buried in an earthen dam six weeks later. Forty-one years later, on this date, Edgar Ray Killen, an 80-year-old former Ku Klux Klansman, would be found guilty of manslaughter in the killings. He would be sentenced to 60 years in prison. He was quite old at the time, 80 years old. 1982, a jury in Washington, D.C. finds John Hinckley Jr. not guilty by reason of insanity in the shooting of President Ronald Reagan, police officer Thomas Delaney, uh, Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy and White House Press Secretary James Brady. 1989, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that burning the U.S. flag is free speech and political protest protected by the First Amendment. 1997, the WNBA debuts with a game between the New York Liberty and the L.A. Sparks. 2004, the first private manned spaceflight is completed by the craft Spaceship One. 2013, President Barack Obama nominates James Comey, a Bush-era justice official, to head the FBI, succeeding Robert Mueller. 2013, the Food Network says it's dropping Paula Deen barely an hour after the celebrity cook posted the first of two videotaped apologies begging forgiveness from fans and critics troubled by her admission to having used racial slurs in the past. Twenty eighteen, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that states can force out of state retailers to collect sales tax on online purchases by their residents. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, President Trump confirms he called off a retaliatory attack on Iran in response to the downing of a U.S. drone 10 minutes before the strike, saying the number of expected casualties was not proportionate to what Tehran had done. Well, Texas public safety chief says the Uvalde police could have stopped Robb Elementary School shooting within three minutes. Well, the head of the Texas Department on Tuesday said that the police could have been much more effective, justifying before a special Texas Senate committee hearing, Colonel Steve McGraw, Director of the Texas Department of Public Safety told lawmakers that there is compelling evidence that the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary School was an abject failure and antithetical to everything we've learned over the last two decades since the Columbine massacre, end quote. Three minutes after the suspect entered the West Building, there was a uh, sufficient number of armed officers wearing body armor to isolate, distract and neutralize the subject, he said. The only thing stopping a hallway of dedicated officers from entering room one 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 and one twelve was the on scene commander who decided to place the lives of officers before the lives of children. Well, McGraw on Tuesday again placed blame on Pete Arandondo, the Uvalde School District police chief, for deciding to put the lives of officers ahead of the lives of children and teachers in the classrooms. His remarks are the first public comments McGraw has made regarding the shooting since last month. The officers had weapons while the children had none. The officers had body armor. The children had none. The officers had training. The subject had none. He said on Tuesday, one hour, 14 minutes and eight seconds. That's how long the children waited and the teachers waited in room 111 to be rescued. And while they waited, the on-scene commander waited for radios and rifles. And he waited for shields and he waited for SWAT. Lastly, he waited for a key that wasn't needed. Mm. You're listening to the uh, Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break here for news and traffic at the top of the hour. In our second hour, Dr. Craig Evans, and we'll take a look at the Gallup poll that suggests belief in God is waning. And we'll also share a Christian response from a local congregation. So stay with us.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. I'm so looking forward to a conversation with my guest, who's the author of Jesus and the Manuscripts What We Can Learn from the Oldest texts. He points out that Jesus and in the book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, it introduces readers to the diversity and complexity of the ancient literature that records the words and deeds of Jesus, or at least uh, purports to record them. This diverse literature includes the familiar Gospels of the New Testament, the much less familiar literature of the Rabbis, and the uh, Quran and the uh, extra canal I can't even ever say this word correctly the narratives and uh, brief snippets of material found in fragments and inscriptions well in this significant book well-known scholar and professor Dr. Craig Evans critically analyzes important texts and quotations in their original languages and engages in current scholarly discussion in exploring important questions such as those surrounding the relationship between the gospel of Thomas and the New Testament. Gospels. Well, my guest, Dr. Craig Evans, um, is the John Bisaggio, Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University in Texas. He is the author or editor of over 90 books and has appeared in more than 100 television documentaries and news programs. I appreciate that he's carved out some time to talk with us here today regarding his latest book, Jesus and the Manuscripts. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Evans.
3: Hey, my privilege. Glad to be with you.
2: Well, let me begin by asking you, um, to whom this book is written? It certainly is scholarly in its approach, but it's also approachable, I would think, to the average reader. To whom is this book written, and to whom do you recommend it?
3: <laughs> well, of course, it is primarily uh, designed for uh, people who do serious Bible study, and ask. they have inquiry minds, they want to know, hey, we're we're where What are the manuscripts, and are they really reliable? How many do we have? How old are they? That sort of thing. But also a far more complex question is, what are the other manuscripts, the ones that are not in the New Testament that uh, are outside the canon, what do they tell us about Jesus? And also, what about manuscript tradition that isn't Christian at all? And in your uh, uh, introductory comment, you noted that, you know, Jesus appears in the Quran, He appears in the Jewish Talmud. Uh, he appears in other traditions, pagan traditions. He's actually appealed to in magic texts. And so I wanted to review all of that, put it all between the covers of a single book. And so, yes, there is Greek and Hebrew and Latin, but it's always translated into English, which means mm-hmm. if... If you're a serious reader, someone like you, of course, you can sit down. You might not know Greek or something like that, but you can read it. You can understand it. there are 60 color images in the back. And you'll go away uh, knowing, oh, that's what this stuff is, and that's what it looks like, I see. So it isn't just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels in the New Testament. You'll learn a lot more about them. But you'll learn about all these other manuscripts, too. And and the reviews and the feedback I've received from people is very encouraging.
2: Yeah, I appreciate your uh, reviewing the Gospels and the Scriptures in a much broader context because most of us don't have that opportunity. So uh, I think we can appreciate the text of Scripture perhaps a bit more when we understand the broader context. I guess the first question is, can we trust the authenticity of the New Testament in light of everything that you cover in the book? Uh, Can we trust the authenticity of it as it's presented, uh, the canon that we have in our scriptures? And we'll talk about some of those uh, extra um, sources as well.
3: Yes, and the answer, quick answer is yes, we can. And in part, uh, that's the purpose of this book because you look at these other manuscript traditions, which many scholars will accept, and say, oh yes, you know, that that's probably correct, and oh yes, that's probably reliable. Well, the New Testament manuscripts, the manuscripts for the New Testament Gospels, are much stronger, they're older, they are numerous, and because we have everything so well attested, when scribes do make a mistake, and they do, these are handwritten, that's why they're called manuscripts, they're written Mm -hmm. by hand, scribes do make mistakes, but it isn't just as though we have only one copy of Matthew, and it has mistakes in it, we have hundreds of copies, and so we can compare, and where the scribes make mistakes, it just sticks out like a sore thumb, it's so obvious, So we're able then to uh, get the text right. And by the way, our English Bibles and other foreign language translations are based on very competent, very carefully edited Greek New Testaments. And so when you're reading uh, in English or German or French or Spanish or whatever, uh, the New Testament Gospels, uh, you're reading what the evangelist originally wrote. There's no mistake about it. And so that's a big part of the purpose. So yeah, to answer your question... The New Testament Gospels are uh, richly attested by ancient manuscripts, many manuscripts, and there really isn't any question about how these manuscripts originally read.
2: You make reference to the Jewish Gospels, but you also say that you believe the Gospels were written for Christians. Can you explain those two things and the fact that it's not a conflict, but just clarify what that means?
3: Well, yeah, it's a very good question, and and it's still a little bit, uh, even today, with all that we have, enshrouded in mystery, but uh, there were what we call the Jewish Gospels. We don't know how many there really were. We think they were closely related to the Gospel of Matthew, and these were uh, Jewish groups that believed in Jesus, but not quite the way the mainstream church did and so they saw him as the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Uh, they might not have quite seen Jesus as divine, or maybe almost. You know, we we just don't know because none of these gospels survive. But we know that they existed because church fathers talk about them and quote them sometimes when they read a little differently. And so that's an interesting question right there. And I wanted to to devote an entire chapter to talking about these lost Jewish Gospels that survive only uh, as quotations.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you believe the Gospels were written for Christians, and of course Christians can be both Jew and Gentile. Um, explain why you believe they were written for Christians. Well,
3: yes, and uh, you know, among some scholars they think, well, Matthew wrote for a particular group of Christians, and John wrote for a particular group, And there could be some truth to that. In other words, when Matthew writes his gospel, the evangelist is in a particular setting. I think he's in a setting where uh, Jewish people who are not Christians, who do not believe in Jesus, are raising all kinds of questions about, does Jesus really fulfill the law? Does he really fulfill prophecy? And the evangelist is saying, yes, he really does. And so it tells the story in a way that speaks to that. So I think there's truth to that. But I think the Gospels also uh, were widely circulated. And so by the time we get into the early 2nd century, uh, Christian churches, local churches all over the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire, were aware of all four of the Gospels, not just one of them. And so in that sense, they were, I think, very much designed to be read by all Christians. But also at the same time, they're being written so that non-Christians, people on the outside looking in and have questions, can read them and, and learn more about Jesus and then hopefully be drawn into the church.
2: You've made several references to the book of Matthew, and you write um, in Jesus and the Manuscripts that the book of Matthew enjoyed pride of place in the uh, fourfold gospel collection. I think for many of us, we look at the gospel of John today as sort of the, uh, the pinnacle. Explain how how Matthew did enjoy a, a pride of place uh, in the early church.
3: Well, you know, that's easily documented. Uh... For one thing, Matthew gets referenced more than any other gospel. When you look at the church fathers, all of the writings in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, when the church wasn't even legal yet in the Roman Empire, Matthew is the gospel. Matthew is probably quoted more often than uh, Mark, Luke, John combined. So uh, Matthew is extremely important. And then when you count the manuscripts that survive, the oldest fragments and pieces and so on of papyrus, Matthew is again in first place. Although that's where John rival, John closely rivals Matthew in Egypt. And so Matthew was the most prominent, and you can think about it. You have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three that cover the same ground very similarly. They're so close, they're called the synoptic Gospels, meaning you can see them together. And uh, and Matthew is the one that has apostolic authorship. Mark doesn't, and neither does Luke. So I think that's a reason why, too. And then mm-hmm. Matthew is a great bridge between the Old Testament and the New, by quoting the Old Testament and showing how uh, Jesus bridges you might say, the Old Testament and the New Testament church. So that's another reason. But John, you know, John really was up there cl- close, in a close second place, very popular uh, in, uh, in Egypt, uh, especially where we have so many manuscripts. But, you know, the Jesus in John looks and sounds very, very different, very metaphorical, very mysterious. And, and some church fathers found that off-putting. They weren't even sure if John should be in the canon.
2: We're going to continue our conversation again. We're talking with Dr. Craig Evans. The book is Jesus and the Manuscripts: What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Craig Evans, his fascinating book, Jesus and the Manuscripts What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. Well, let's talk about the oldest texts. Uh, Your book deals with the oldest manuscripts inside and outside the Christian canon. Uh, What are some of the conclusions that you have come to uh, having studied uh, this and presenting it in your book?
3: Well, we have uh, some very old manuscripts. We have fragments that date back to within 100 years, maybe even less than 100 years, uh, from the time when the originals were written. That's an extraordinary mm-hmm. record of preservation. But also, we have reason to believe that the originals were in circulation for a long time. And and w- why do we know that? Well, it's because Church Fathers talk about the originals, the what we call the autographs, the actual... Manuscript written in the very hand of the author. Uh, they say that Matthew exists. For example, uh, there's a tradition that uh, the John, the original John, the autograph of John, was in circulation for over one, uh, over 200 years, and that you think, wow, that that can't, how can that be? Or Paul's letters, Tertullian at the end of the second century is talking about the originals that, that Paul himself wrote. Still in existence. Well, we have evidence because pagans say the same thing. They talk about uh, autographs by Aristotle, for example, still in existence 250 years after they were originally written. Then we have archaeological evidence, and the eruption at Mount Vesuvius is a good case in point. We know when these manuscripts came to a sudden end, and that was in the year 79 when Vesuvius erupted. Well, we can x-ray the manuscripts. They're preserved. They were turned into carbon. We can't unroll them. They would crumble, but we can x-ray them and use mri technology and so we're able to reconstruct them digitally and look at the handwriting and that can be dated and it turns out many of these were two hundred and three hundred years old when vesuvius erupted and it makes sense i mean Mm -hmm. georgine you know you and i can buy for ten dollars a paperback at the airport you know nobody could buy a book that cheap in antiquity books were terribly expensive and so nobody threw them away uh the books were really old before you finally discarded them and so the idea that a book would be in use for 100 200 years 300 years really isn't that unusual. And Christians treasured the writings of the apostles. So if the originals were in existence for 200 years, that controls the text. If you have any doubt about, well, how does Romans read here, or how does Matthew read here, you can consult with the original. And so that had a stabilizing effect on the text. And that's why I have great confidence that... The New Testament text has been well-preserved. And so these theories that are popular out and about, you know, somebody changed the text, who knows what Jesus really said or did, those theories have no basis in the evidence.
2: We're talking with Dr. Craig Evans, his book, his latest book, Jesus and the Manuscripts. Let's talk about some of the uh, uh, Gospels, if you will, that were not included in the Christian canon. Um, what became of the Gospel of Thomas, and why is it not part of the New Testament?
3: Well, it's not part of the New Testament, number one, I believe, because the uh, person who composed it didn't want it to be the New Testament. And that's not hard. It doesn't take any special calculation to do, to come up to, with that conclusion. In the opening line, it says these are the secret words of the living Jesus, which Judas Thomas wrote down. Well, you know, when you say these are the secret words, you're saying they're not the public words. And uh, the the books that were uh, in the canon of Scripture were the books that were read publicly in church. Well, we know that because the the uh, written records all say that. And so church fathers will say, well, you can read in public, you can read in the church, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but you should not read these other writings, which are false, etc., and so on. So we all know those. that was the standard for canonicity. And so when Thomas is written sometime in the 2nd century, I think in the late 2nd century, he says these are the secret words. Right away he's making a statement. He doesn't see his work as canonical at all. And so it's a secret writing which is supposed to correct, update, supplement, something like that, the public gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The other thing, uh, too, Georgine, is that, uh, the, the New Testament Gospels clearly mirror the early first century in the land of Israel. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas mirrors or reflects second century Syria. The ideas there, the asceticism, the esotericism, and things like that. And so there's, you, you know, as one scholar put it, if all we had was the Gospel of Thomas, would we even know that Jesus was Jewish? <laughs> and I think, you know, that just gives away the store.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you refer to a fifth gospel, the gospel of Peter. And First of all, why is it called the cross gospel, and why wasn't that included in the Christian canon?
3: Well, in this particular case, the gospel doesn't c- claim to be secret, so it's very open to being read. And by the way, it actually was read in some of the churches in Syria in the second century, a careless bishop. Uh, he didn't mind, and then he later realized his name was Serapion. and he go, oops, wait a minute, he read it and realized this thing's got crazy stuff in it, and then he told uh, the churches, stop reading it. In other words, don't treat it as if it's canonical scripture. The reason it's called the cross gospel is because when Jesus uh, comes out of the tomb in the resurrection account, the cross comes out with him. That is very mysterious, and by the way, that that gives it away, that That was of great interest in some circles in the second century, the idea that the cross somehow is alive and it accompanies Jesus, goes to heaven with him, and will come back from heaven with him when he returns. And, of course, Jesus' head is real tall. It reaches all the way up into the clouds. So this is a, a wild embellishment of the story, I think. It's reckless apologetic. It's trying to impress unbelievers, trying to answer the question of, you know, why are the New Testament Gospels so subdued? You know, two frightened women go to the empty tomb on Easter. Why isn't your account more impressive? Well, Peter's giving a very impressive account. And that's why it doesn't really rival the New Testament Gospels, and it certainly shouldn't be in the canon of
2: Scripture. Uh, You mentioned earlier there are rumors floating about about not only the gospels but the character of Jesus himself is there any real evidence whatsoever that Jesus was either married or encouraged homosexual behavior as some today uh, have argued is the case
3: there's not a shred of evidence of that nature it's it's all it's a modern thing the idea that uh you know Jesus might have had a special relationship with Mary This is all cooked up and modern. Some will say, well, wait a minute. Aren't there some uh, Gnostic Gospels from the 2nd and 3rd centuries that say that? Well, actually not. If you understand Gnosticism and what the Gospel of Mary, for example, or the Gospel of Philip, if you understand what they actually say, uh, all they're claiming is that Mary was a disciple. And this is a a, a custom, it's an ordinary strategy back in the day. If you want Jesus to say something brand new that is very suspicious, something that we never heard him say anywhere else, like in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, then you write a new gospel and you attribute it to somebody who's lesser known. And so you attribute it to Philip or to Mary or to Thomas or somebody else. That's how you smuggle into the Jesus tradition stuff that Jesus never taught. But even the Gnostics who did that, the knowers, the ones who wanted to know special stuff, even they never thought for a moment that Jesus had a physical relationship with Mary or any other woman. And this other text, this fragment that was much talked about just a few years ago, the Gospel of Jesus' Wife is a modern hoax inspired by Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. So no, there, there's nothing to it. A secret mark that supposedly has a naked Jesus you know, uh, instructing a in nude youth in the mysteries of the king of heaven, that's a modern fiction as well. Again, reflecting modern interests in sexuality and nothing to do with antiquity.
2: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Craig Evans, his book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, what we can learn from the oldest texts. We'll be back in a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Craig Evans. He is the author of Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts. You have a chapter titled Jesus in Small Texts. Uh, Tell us a bit about uh, what the small texts are and why they're important in uh, in understanding who Jesus is and uh, the reliability of Scripture and the whole context of uh, the truth of this history.
3: Well, thanks for asking about that chapter. Chapter 10, it was the hardest one to write because everything in it is so diverse. Uh, I, I wanted to, uh, you know, the book was getting awfully long, but I wanted to include some of these interesting things. Jesus, is, you know, he's there are stories and teachings inscribed in stone, inscribed in metal, inscribed on pieces of leather, uh, fragments, uh, uh, bowls, ceramic bowls. It goes on and on. Jesus appears in so many different text forms, and so I wanted to gather it all together. And a lot of this is pagan, by the way. Some of it is Jewish, and some of it is Christian. So when I call it small text, I'm referring to either the text originally was small, one sentence or maybe a paragraph, or it's just a small fragment of what would have been a larger text. And it comes in all kinds of varieties. And, in fact, two of these texts could actually date from the first century, which would be very early. We have Jesus' name inscribed on a bone box, the controversial James box. If it does refer to Jesus and his family, well, then that's a very early date. We can precisely date it to the year 63, one year after James, the brother of Jesus, died. It's written in Aramaic, and it says, James, the son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, and that would be quite possibly the earliest surviving artifact where Jesus' name is written. Mm. We also have what may be a reference to Jesus as Christ written on a magician's cup sometime in the middle uh, of the uh, first century. That's really interesting. It's a pagan cup, and some pagan magician thinks he can improve the potency, the power of his magic, by writing Christ on his magic cup. Uh, We have a a magical text from Egypt written on papyrus that refers to Jesus as the God of the Hebrews, quite possibly as early as the 60s or or so of the first century. So these are three examples where Jesus shows up, and it's not even Christian, and uh, and where his name is mentioned. So I wanted to cover all that ground. Now, some of it, uh, some of it is spurious and medieval, and I wanted to note that too. Mm-hmm. Some think they have the fragment of the uh, title that was on the cross that said, Jesus, King of the Jews. I think that's a forgery. But uh, that's what this uh, chapter covers. I think readers will find it fascinating. Jesus was talked about everywhere in the
2: ancient world. Well, I do think it's fascinating because we might hear rumors of this or that, and to put it in its proper context, the source, the origin, and so on, I think helps us all Understand and appreciate, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, understand the veracity of Scripture. Um, now we're we're almost out of time, so I want to ask the broad question of what you hope your reader will take away from Jesus and the manuscripts. Um, if they're questioning the reliability of Scripture, if they're questioning other sources, or or or. Uh, wonder about other sources in which Jesus is referenced or the Gospels are are, um, are referenced, what do you hope your reader takes away from what I think is a serious and rigorous um, review of the evidence uh, of the Christian canon and other uh, sources that make reference to Jesus and the Gospel? Well,
3: that's a great question, and you've practically answered it in the way you raised the question. I want readers to know that there is rigorous study And so uh, when we talk about the New Testament Gospels or the words of Jesus, this isn't some kind of mushy-headed pie-in-the-sky stuff. There's real serious scholarship behind it. There's real evidence and lots of it. And so when we talk about the Gospels preserving the words of Jesus and his deeds, we know what we're talking about on the basis not of piety and faith but on the basis of hard evidence and when people like dan brown write silly books they need to know that that's exactly what they are they're silly books uh and this stuff like the gospel of thomas the gospel of peter yeah it's it's stuff that was written a long time ago but nobody took it seriously because it doesn't really reflect the historical jesus and that's not just a pious dogmatic opinion but it's based on careful research
2: well, I just want to thank you for the careful research that you have done and making it presentable for those of us who are not scholars to better understand um, what's out there, to put it in its proper context. And I think uh, regard the scriptures um, as highly as we ought, as reliable and a source uh, for wisdom and faith. Dr. Evans, thank you so much for talking with us today.
3: Oh, you're very welcome.
2: Once again, the title of the book, Jesus and the Manuscripts, What We Can Learn from the Oldest Texts, the book is published by Hendrickson. I'll also have uh, the link um, on my Facebook page uh, for the show, so if you happen to be in your car and you didn't catch that, um, do catch it. And I want to also encourage you, um, I think you might find it approachable. It is scholarly, it does cover a lot of material, but if you take your time, I think you'll find it very useful in, uh, in understanding the broader context of, uh, of the Gospels. We'll return in a moment for our final segment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I ended yesterday's show making a reference to a Gallup poll that indicated that belief in God in the United States has dipped to 81%, and that represents a new low for the U.S. Now, on the one hand, it can be rather discouraging. Fewer people believe in God. But the more I thought about it, I was reminded that there are lots of former atheists who will be in heaven. There are lots of people who denied the existence of God who came to, to know him and to serve him and to love him. So while this is certainly instructive and can be discouraging, you'd like to think that more people through the challenging season we've just been through would come to seek after him. This number does uh, tell us that fewer people are acknowledging that they Uh, believe that God exists at all. Well, according to the Gallup poll, the vast majority of U.S. adults believe in God, but the 81% who do so is down six percentage points from the year 2017, and it's the lowest in Gallup's trend. Between 1944 and 2011, more than 90% of Americans believed in God, and then it went down from there. In part of the survey, they pointed out that younger liberal Americans least are the least likely to believe in God. Uh, it's fallen the most in recent years among young adults and people on the left of the political spectrum. Uh, these groups show drops of 10 or more percentage points comparing the 2022 figure to an average from 2013 to 2017 polls. Most other key subgroups have experienced at least a modest decline, although conservatives and married adults have had essentially no change. The the groups with the largest declines are also the groups that are currently least likely to believe, including liberals at 62 percent, young adults at 68 percent, Democrats at 72 percent. Belief in God is highest among political conservatives at 94 percent, Republicans at 92 percent, reflecting that religiosity is a major uh, determination of political division in the U.S. Now, just a point of reference uh, when you come to faith in Christ or when you are considering his appeal uh, that suggests all of us needs a savior, we're sinners who have all fallen short, there is no reference to one's political affiliation. So if you happen to be a Democrat and this is offensive to you or you're a Republican and you're rather proud and puffed up at the fact that politics tends to divide us along religious lines, that is not a metric that is uh, has any impression on God at all. So just wanted to make that point. Um, four in ten say God that can uh, God can hear prayers and intervene. So even among those who believe in God, there's some doubt that he's actually involved in the affairs of men. There was a follow-up question in this survey. It probed further into what Americans believe uh, in God entails. Specifically, the question asked whether God hears prayers and whether he intervenes when people pray. Now, we know the God of the Bible in his word says that we are invited to uh, make our petitions known to him to come boldly before the throne of grace and he encourages us to make our requests known but about half of those who believe in god equal to 42 percent of all americans say god hears prayers and can intervene on a person's behalf 28 percent of all americans say god hears prayers but cannot intervene so this is a god that is less than the god of scripture 11 percent say um, God does neither. He neither intervenes or hears prayers. Nearly three-quarters of the most religious Americans, defined as those who attend religious services every week, or at least on a regular basis, say they believe God hears prayers and can intervene, as do slightly more than half of conservatives and Republicans, as well as 25 percent of liberals and 32 percent of Democrats. I sort of resent the division along political lines, but they're trying to help us better understand the culture as it exists. I'm not going to predict that there are going to be more Republicans in heaven than there'll be Democrats, because, quite frankly, it's going to be so irrelevant that no one would even think of raising the question. And while these numbers reflect one thing or the other, again, it's not relevant in the kingdom of God. 30% of young adults rather believe God hears prayers and can intervene. The bottom line, according to Gallup, fewer Americans today than five years ago believe in God, and the percentage is down even more from the 1950s and 60s. And I suppose it's not altogether surprising. It can be a little bit discouraging, but I am reminded that the gospel can penetrate uh, the hearts of individuals who have determined not to believe that He exists uh, or to certainly bow the knee. So that said, I was encouraged by an email in response to this survey that I received from the pastor of Bethany Bible Church here in the Portland area. Pastor Greg Allen meets with a. Uh, his church family on every Sunday evening, and they set aside time specifically to pray for a spiritual awakening in our time. Uh, And last night, this was um, last Sunday night, they uh, began uh, meeting by reading uh, the Breitbart article, the um, Gallup poll that I just referenced, belief in God among us adults sank to an all time low this year. And then he uh, cites the survey. But they made some observations that I thought might be uh, encouraging. He writes that this was pretty staggering to us as a group since the time we began praying for revival, at least according to this survey. The numbers of people who confess to belief in God in our country have dropped almost nine percent. And the number of those who say they believe in God hears and answers prayers has declined. I suppose that much of it could have been have to do with the tremendous cultural turmoil our nation has gone through. Since then, along with two years of a pandemic in the midst of all the troubles, people may have begun to wonder where God was in it might. uh, But I wondered if uh, it might have been had more to do with moral choices rather than difficult circumstances over the past 10 years or so. Um largely because of the powerful influence of social media. More and more people in our nation have been trained to em- embrace beliefs, values, practices and ethical principles that are irreconcilable uh, with a belief in God. He writes, um all uh, we've always found out that they had begun to introduce something into when he met with people within his um sphere of influence in the church who had fallen away from the faith. It all they, He always found out that they had begun to introduce something into their private lives that just couldn't be reconciled with faith in God and obedience to his commandments. It was very interesting to me, he writes, that the survey group that has dropped the most in the belief in God is also the same group that has embraced left-leaning or so-called liberal values. Perhaps it's the embrace of those values that caused the loss in belief in God rather than the other way around. And as we talked and prayed about this, this is his church prayer group, I felt led to read 2 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 4, in which Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy saying, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Again, that second Timothy chapter four, verses one through four. It sounds a lot like the kind of times that we're living in, but he doesn't end there. But you referring to believers be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry and then pastor Allen concludes all of us in our prayer group sort of perked up a bit when we heard the last verse especially the call to do the work of an evangelist what a great opportunity these days can be for the gospel now i prefer to look at it in that way as does the pastor and his congregation even though this survey may seem like a very discouraging bit of news i believe god means for it to be a wake-up call for us May God help us as his people to trust him in these times and to pray earnestly that God will send workers into his increasingly ripe harvest. And as we pray that he would send workers, we need to respond, Lord, here am I, send me. So I appreciated that perspective in the midst of what can otherwise be interpreted as a rather divisive and discouraging uh, survey that divides us along political lines when, in fact, political lines are pretty irrelevant when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what political party you're affiliated with. What matters is what you say about and what you do with the son, Jesus Christ. And we can certainly pray. And as uh, Paul wrote to Timothy, be faithful as evangelists in sharing the gospel in love, uh, despite the distinctions and differences that exist among us. All right, we are out of time. I want to thank uh, James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow, and in the meantime, have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook.